0: hello and welcome to paincast conversations on pain and physiotherapy this podcast is brought to you by the pain science division of the canadian physiotherapy association i'm tiffany a physiotherapy student at the university of toronto today we're honored to have dr lucas lima joining us Dr. Lucas Lima is a research associate at the Allen Edwards Center for Research on Pain at McGill University. He is a physiotherapist with a PhD and postdoctoral training in pain neuroscience. His latest research, published in the Science Translational Medicine Journal, has garnered significant media attention for challenging current practices in acute musculoskeletal pain management, specifically the suggestion that NSAIDs might increase the risk of developing chronic pain. In this episode, we talked about what inflammation is, recent evidence on the relationship between inflammation and chronification of acute pain, and evidence-based recommendations on NSAIDs and icing post-injury. Enjoy! Hi Lucas, thank you so much for joining me on Paincast today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, thank you for having me.
2: That's awesome. I'm really excited about this interview today. I'm really intrigued about this topic. To start off, can you introduce yourself, what you do, and what a typical week looks like for you?
1: My name is Lucas Lima. I'm uh, currently a research scientist at the Alan Edwards Center for Pain Research at Maggie University. I have a background in physical therapy. I have a degree in physical therapy from the Federal University of Sergipe in Brazil. So if you're wondering about the accent, that's where it's from. During that time, I got involved in pain research in a pain and physical therapy lab that was headed by my supervisor, Josie de Santana. I fell in love with the pain research, and then I decided to pursue a career in that. So one interesting thing about that lab is that it was a physical therapy research lab that also did basic science. So it worked with mice. Which is, is not very common for physical therapy research. For obvious reasons, physical therapy research is, for good reasons, more related to clinical studies. But I think basic science and animal research can have really great benefits for physical therapy in terms of giving insight into mechanisms of our treatments. So I decided to do a master's in that lab and also a PhD later, where I worked with basic science related to mechanisms of TENS, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, and physical exercise. And for my PhD, I worked with Kathleen Zluka at the University of Iowa in the US. And for in this like intersection between pain research, physical therapy research, and basic science, she's probably like the biggest name we have in this field. So yeah, then I, I came to Canada to do a postdoc at the Alberta's Pain Center because it's like a center of excellence in pain research. And now I am a research staff at the center. Do you ask how my week looks like? So I I'm, I'm mostly I work at the lab so it's, it's mostly like hands-on doing research or assessing students. There's also a lot of data analysis, meetings to discuss and present data, occasionally going to conferences to give talks and that kind of stuff.
2: So it's heavily research surrounded. Yes. So How long have you been working on the topic about inflammation?
1: The interest in inflammation is is a recent development. I've been always doing pain research, but I was more focused on the brain. So what central nervous system mechanisms are involved. But the inflammation came into my my interest when I was doing my postdoc in Jeffrey Mogul's lab. And we were approached by our colleagues at the pain genetics lab. They're also at the pain center because they had these very interesting and surprising findings on pain genetics, genetic expression of low back pain patients. And they wanted to talk to us into developing mice experiments to better understand what they found.
2: Before we dive too deep into the studies, let's establish a common ground for us and for our audience. How would you define inflammation?
1: So inflammation is... Mm -hmm a response of your body, of your organism, in response to injury. So, for example, if you have an ankle sprain, parts of your ligaments will be injured. So your body is going to respond by dilation of blood cells, migration of different number of immune cells that are going to remove the injured tissue and start a process of regeneration. So it is a physiological important process that, of course, when it happens, what we do is to try to block it. Why? Because inflammation comes with these five, what we call cardinal signs, which are heat, redness, swelling, pain, and loss of function. And of course, pain being the most unpleasant of them all, and what makes us try to stop it. And that's why when we have inflammation, what we do is mostly, we take NSAIDs, known serodal anti-inflammatories, to try to stop that process. But the recent findings suggest that this might not be a good idea.
2: To dive a little more into inflammation itself a little bit, is tissue damage necessary for inflammation to occur?
1: No. Well, that would be the normal process. You have an injury or you might have an infection and then your body is going to respond to fight an infection or to repair the injury. Of course, we have situations where inflammation occurs pathologically, for example, immune diseases or chronic inflammatory conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis. Or we have uh, conditions where we have the injury, but the inflammation stays longer than the time that is supposed to occur the tissue repair.
2: So for today's discussion, is there a particular type of inflammation that we're focusing on?
1: Yeah, this is important. Our study focused on the regular acute inflammatory response. So the normal physiological response that happens after you have an injury.
2: Since you have a background in pain research and now you're studying inflammation i'm curious what would be your take on the relationship between pain and inflammation do they occur always at the same time do one always happen with the other
1: so pain can be a consequence of inflammation But pain is not necessarily associated with inflammation, right? We have different types of pain that are not necessarily associated with inflammation, such as nociplastic and neuropathic pain. But the pain associated with inflammation, that pain also has physiological property, right? It has an important role. Because it indicates to us that we need to protect the area that was injured, avoid movements in order for the proper tissue repair to occur.
2: So, not all pain involves inflammation, but all inflammation involves pain.
1: Most of the times, yeah.
2: Now, since today we're going to talk about our approach to inflammation and what does recent evidence tell us, can you do a recap on what has been the typical approach to inflammation?
1: So, the most uh, commonly prescribed medication when you have pain and inflammation are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So it's, it's kind of a rule. Every time we have pain and inflammation, what is done is to block it with medication. Or if we think in the like, physical therapy side, we have, for example, the price protocol, which part of it is applying ice with the purpose of reducing swelling and blocking the inflammatory response. Right. And even though we know that we need that inflammation in order to have tissue repair, that has been the protocol because, I mean, of course, we need to treat that pain because pain that is not properly treated is also in risk of turning into chronic pain. But there might be better approaches to relieve that pain and allow the proper inflammatory response to take place.
2: Yeah, let's dive into that evidence. What type of evidence suggests the otherwise now that we should not impede inflammation?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the study that we published, Science of Medicine. So our yeah. colleagues at the Pain Genetics Lab developed this experiment where they recruited patients with low back pain at the acute stage. So within three days of when they had the first symptoms, they collected blood from those patients. And then three months later, they saw those patients again to collect blood. But what happened at this point, at this three month point, is that there were two groups of patients the ones who resolved pain, so they have more pain, and the ones who developed chronic pain, so they had persistent pain. And by comparing the genetic expression analysis between those blood samples, and by comparing the acute stage with the chronic stage between those two groups, they aim to identify what possible processes are leading for this chronification of pain in those patients who had persistent pain. What they found was quite surprising. And the surprise number one is that when looking at the gene expression in those patients who had persistent pain, trying to identify active processes leading to this chronification, they didn't see anything. It was like nothing uh, happened in those patients between the acute phase and the chronic phase. They were the same in terms of uh, gene expression. But when we looked at the patients who resolved, who had acute pain, but three months later were completely resolved, those patients had hundreds of significant expressed genes. So a big difference in gene expression between the acute and chronic phase. So that was surprising because the whole pain field believes that there might be active processes leading to pain chronification. But what we saw with our colleagues saw is that there's actually active process leading to resolution. And when When their system is stagnant, that's when pain becomes chronic.
2: For this particular study, those who enrolled into it with acute low back pain, are they the first episode of low back pain ever in their lives, or are they can be uh, acute exacerbation of chronic low back pain?
1: No, very specifically for for this experiment, it was the first episode, so we really wanted to see... What happens for the transition of the first episode of acute pain? What happens for, for that to become chronic? So we saw that there was this large number of genes being expressed in the people who resolved. The next step was to look into these genes and see what processes are involved in these genes. And what they saw was that it was mostly related to inflammation, but in a totally unexpected direction. Because what we saw was. When comparing the acute phase of those who resolved pain and those who had persistent pain, those who resolved pain had much more inflammation, had a much stronger inflammatory response than the ones who had persistent pain. And over time, after three months, the resolvers, so they had this acute, strong inflammatory response, but three months later, they had no inflammation. But the persistence it was like they had this blunted inflammatory response. So it was not as high as the resolvers. And then three months later, they were still at the same level of inflammation. So this they were kind of stuck in this low-grade chronic inflammation. So what this suggests is that in order to trigger proper resolution of, of injury, of inflammation, we need to have a peak of inflammation, a peak of inflammatory response in order to lead to the regenerative phase.
2: So, just going back to the sample population, are their acute low back pain caused by an injury? Like they lifted heavy or something like that and then they had a low back pain or they kind of have, there wasn't any a diagnosis made for their acute low back pain?
1: Well, it was not restricted, but there was a different types of diagnosis. The only fact was that it had to be acute within three days and be the first time they had this type of uh, low back
2: pain. Right. And would you say that most people, if not all, who have acute low back pain for the first time in their lives have a low back pain that is inflammatory in nature? Um,
1: I don't have the data to, to show what's the percentage, but I would say that most of them... If it's uh, acute, it will be inflammatory.
2: Mm -hmm. And now that we find that those who had chronic low back pain, meaning their pain persisted for more than three months, had no change in their gene expression, and those who resolved had a significant change in gene expression, are we attributing this to being the cause of recovery for their acute pain?
1: So our interpretation is... It has to do with the innate immune system and capability of your body to have a, a proper immune response. So it's possible that the ones who had persistent pain, they had a deficient immune response. So they couldn't reach the proper amount of inflammation that is necessary to trigger the second phase, which is the regeneration and tissue repair phase. And this finding was so, it's not only low back pain. We also replicated this in TMD patients. We saw the same results.
2: Just for clarification, can you explain what TMD is? Oh, uh, temporal
1: mandibular disorders, yeah. So, oral facial pain. Basically.
2: Yeah, so that's really interesting. Do we know if the two groups, those who resolved versus those who didn't, did they have different levels of severity and in injury? Or, uh, you know, why do they have different levels of inflammation to begin with?
1: Yeah, that we don't know. I mean, there's different reasons that might be someone to have different levels of, of immune response. Levels of physical activity, for example, right? People that are physically active, they have better immune response than sedentary people. So that might be one aspect. Diet, any uh, number of reasons that might lead to your immune response
2: being weaker. Okay. so. There are different factors for why a particular group of people have a greater immune response to their acute pain. Are these reasons... Oh, I guess you kind of addressed my questions. Like I was kind of alluding to like whether these differences are pretty much genetic or lifestyle-based. Um, can we do anything about it?
1: No, good question. So I believe it's more of an interaction. It's always so more phenotype than genotypes. so it's an interaction between genes and the environment for example you might have genes that with a disposition of this kind of weaker immune response but if you are physically active then you might uh, compensate for that right by your diet or, or being physically active you might compensate for that and then you have better
2: immune response mm. so based on the study what we're saying that from the immunology perspective the factors leading to developing chronicity of a pain is whether someone have a greater response of inflammation to their acute pain and whether that inflammation is suppressed or not yeah so
1: not to the acute pain also to the acute injury
2: acute injury yeah
1: Yeah, so of course the innate immune response might be responsible for this chronification, but of course, other thing that suppresses the immune response is by taking anti-inflammatories when you have an injury, right? You're you're blocking that inflammatory response and possibly not allowing the proper process of regeneration to occur. So that's what we tested next. So we developed a number of mouse experiments to test that hypothesis, so, we give mice different types of pain, inflammatory, lower back, neuropathic. And then, right after those types of injuries, we give them at first dexamethasone, which is a very strong steroidal anti inflammatory. And then we test the pain behavior for a long period of time. And we do that by poking the paw with hair like filaments of increasing force. And then if they are insensitive, sensitive, they will respond to those filaments. They have a withdrawal response. So what we saw is that when mice are treated with dexamethasone, of course, during the treatment, which in our experiments were seven days after the injury, they have an because we're blocking the inflammatory response. But then when we interrupt the treatment and we follow them for a long time, we see that the control mice, the mice that did not receive treatment, they start to recover at depending on the type of pain, but around two weeks, they start to recover. For the mice that received dexamethasone, they immediately after we stop the treatment, they become hyperalgesic or having pain, pain sensitive again, and they take much longer to recover. In our experiments, instead of recovering in two weeks, mice took 100 days to recover, to have the pain sensitivity recover to baseline levels. So this suggests that uh, behavior evidence that blocking inflammation with the dexamethasone, a steroid and inflammatory, leads to pain chronification. So then, of course, we repeated with uh, NSAID, which is a more common used medication uh, like the clofenac, ibuprofen, and we saw the same results. So there was analgesia during the treatment, but after that, mice became pain sensitive again and took much longer to recover.
2: So after finding that one of the factors for leading up to chronicity of pain is the extent of inflammation you have after the acute injury. The next step you took was to see whether actively reducing that acute inflammation can lead to chronicity of pain. And you find that with the steroidal anti-inflammatory and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in mice models, that indeed led to longer periods of pain, even though they had lower pain levels at the acute injury phase. Is that right, Samir?
1: Exactly. So the, the medication had an acute benefit, acute pain relief, but on the other hand, it led to much longer recovery time and, in fact, pain chronification. Yeah, we saw that this is mostly due to interfering with neutrophils, which are immune cells, they're kind of the first responders of inflammation. When we deplete neutrophils in mice and give them an injury, they develop chronic pain. And when we give them neutrophils after we injure them and block inflammation with dexamethasone, we don't see chronification when we give them neutrophils. So it's showing that really this immediate uh, inflammatory response is really important.
2: Okay, yeah, I guess that's really the benefits of Having mice as our experiment subjects, you can control all these factors. So basically, you found that neutrophils are essential and necessary to prevent chronic pain in, a, in the setting of an acute injury.
1: Yeah. And then we tried to see if there's human data to support this idea that anti-inflammatories might lead to chronic pain. So we went to the UK Biobank, which is this large database of patients. And we looked for correlations between NSAID intake, which is is the UK, so it's, it's mostly ibuprofen, and rate of chronic pain. And we saw there was a 1.7 uh, greater risk of reporting chronic pain in people that took NSAIDs.
2: In that biobank, for those who had acute pain, just to clarify, these are all people who develop pain in that particular body region for the first time it's not an acute exacerbation of chronic pain
1: no it's, uh, it's taking NSAIDs at the acute phase of the injury and then reporting having pain longer periods i believe it's six months
2: are there any confounders that could be causing this result
1: yeah but we controlled for sex age and compared of course use of uh, paracetamol and antidepressants and even controlling for these variables, the, the effect was still significant. Mm,
2: that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, interesting in this the biobank uh, analysis, we also look at the percentage of neutrophils and rate of chronic pain. And we saw that the neutrophil percentage was inversely associated with chronic pain, uh, showing that again, the importance of neutrophils and this immediate inflammatory response for prevention of chronic pain.
2: Right. Do we have any idea of whether this, what we've talked about, all of that, apply to acute exacerbation of chronic pain?
1: What, What do you mean by that?
2: So let's say, for example, you have low back pain for a long time. You have chronic low back pain, and then once in a while you have an acute exacerbation, just like really painful for a couple of days or a week, that type of pain. Do we have any idea whether suppressing inflammatory response during that period um, is also bad, quote unquote, for you?
1: Yeah, this is a good question, but yeah, I don't have the answer, mm. <laughs> importantly. Yeah, there's something that we should look at, because right now we only have information on acute pain.
2: Yes, yes. Now, what about things like chronic inflammation, let's say you have an Achilles tendon injury and then after a long time it's still being a bit angry, a bit grumpy, you have like morning stiffness, morning pain, that type of inflammation. Do we know whether taking NSAID is okay for that or we don't have any inflammation just as of now?
1: Yeah, I think it's possible in these cases, you are already stuck in this low-grade chronic inflammation, and that's possibly associated with this this chronic pain. So mm-hmm. so I don't know if uh, any cells would have a, a benefit, but also you're already past the stage of having the, the acute peak of inflammation and resolution. You're, you're already at the stage where you're stuck in this chronic inflammatory state. Right.
2: Because... The research that you've been doing and focusing on is really trying to look at our response to inflammation occurring in an acute injury situation, not necessarily how do we respond to chronic low-grade inflammation.
1: Yeah, I think one idea that should be looking to it is rather instead of blocking that inflammation, stimulating the immune system to respond and maybe trigger the resolution of this chronic inflammatory state
2: so yeah should we try to increase inflammatory response
1: oh if we should well yes, it depends on the case one thing that of course is beneficial is to not necessarily induce inflammation but uh, boost your immune system one way to do that and one, one of the things i'm interested in is exercise as you know that exercise accelerates uh, tissue repair and it has been said that uh, oh exercise has anti-inflammatory effects because when we look at the effects of exercise on immune cells most of I- immune cells we have two phenotypes for each pro-inflammatory and the anti-inflammatory we, we have that for neutrophils and macrophages for example so we have the pro-inflammatory macrophages that go to the site of injury to remove that tissue and we have the anti-inflammatory macrophages that promote regeneration. There's a lot of evidence of exercise promoting this phenotype change from the pro-inflammatory to the anti-inflammatory macrophages. And a lot of people claim that it shows that exercise is anti-inflammatory. I would rather say that exercise is pro-resolution and it boosts the immune response, kind of accelerates this process of having the, the peak of inflammation and then triggering of the resolution. So exercise would be a way to boost that immune response. It could also be beneficial to induce inflammation itself. And one of the things that we do that is dry needling, right? For example, we have um, muscle pain, we we insert the needle. What happens is that we cause an inflammation by inserting the needle. And there's like a paper showing that dry needling does cause this transient inflammation that is resolved within like one week. So that might be like the mechanism behind the effectiveness of dry needling. is triggering this inflammation and leading to the resolution.
2: I guess shockwave would be a similar mechanism to resolving recalcitrant tendinopathy or tendinitis, just to kind of reintroducing that trauma a little bit, like restart that process of healing and so on. Um, We've been talking about after an acute injury it's probably not a good idea to use NSAIDs to suppress that inflammatory response, even though it leads to a short-term benefit in pain reduction. What if the person has a lot of pain or, you know, we know when acute pain is not resolved, there is an increased chance of developing chronic pain? How do we strike that balance or address that problem of, you know, unaddressed acute pain?
1: Yeah. So inflammation is not always the same and there could be different levels of inflammation and certain levels of inflammation might have uh, damaging effects. And in these cases, it might be beneficial to dampen that response. But I'll say in most of the cases where it's a normal inflammatory response, then it would be best not to interfere with the proper inflammatory response. But in cases where the, the inflammatory response is exaggerated and do not correspond to the initial injury, and we have excessive edema, excessive swelling, in those cases, it, it might be beneficial to dampen the, the inflammation. But also um, in those normal cases when, when we have an injury and you ha- have pain, but it's the normal inflammatory process, by not interfering with the inflammation, that does not mean that we should not treat the pain. Because acute pain that is not properly treated might also turn into chronic pain. So mm-hmm. we should look at alternatives. So medication that is not anti-inflammatory. So analgesics that don't have anti-inflammatory effects. Other alter- alternatives such as... I'm a big proponent of TENS. Transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation it has been shown to be very beneficial, especially for like post-operative uh, environments.
2: So. How do we know when inflammatory response is exaggerated and excessive?
1: Yeah, that's difficult, right? We need to develop better tools to identify those this grading of the inflammatory response. But we, we can look at uh, things such as exaggerated swelling, for example, or the duration, right? If, if it's, it stays longer than we should be.
2: Okay. Now we've talked a lot about taking antipsychotics. Another very common approach to acute injury is icing. As you've talked about, it's in, in the PRICE protocol, which is developed a long time ago. What does current literature say about icing? Yeah,
1: you know, right after we finished this first study with the NSAIDs, of course, as a physical therapist, my mind went straight to icing and the PRICE protocol and wondering what happens then when you block inflammation with ice. When I only have this the idea is to look into the literature and see if there's already something. And well, first of all, in terms of like clinical evidence supporting the use of ice is is very weak. Actual evidence showing that ice is beneficial is very weak. But then looking at the studies showing that ice might have negative effects, I saw there was actually evidence related to tissue repair. So there's a number of experiments in mice that show that applying ice, uh, reducing the temperature of the muscle with ice after injury leads to a delay in tissue repair. And you know that tissue repair is associated with the resolution of pain. So my next aim was to see what happens in terms of the pain resolution. And that's one of the studies that we did after. And we, we finished now, it's not published yet, We still is under peer review process. But what we saw was very similar. So we did a number of types of injury in mice, and in this study in particular, we also did exercise-induced muscle pain to better replicate situations where ice is used. So after I guess trainers exercise, right, you apply ice. So that mouse model t- tries to replicate that. And we saw a very similar process that we saw with the NSAIDs. So ice acutely does produce pain relief, but if we follow the pain of those mice for a longer time, we see that the mice that receive ice take longer to recover. So, is there more evidence that even by reducing inflammation with ice, which is a much weaker anti inflammatory mechanism than taking NSAIDs, it still leads to a delay in recovery for both tissue repair and for pain itself?
2: Interesting. Now, ice impairs inflammatory response by cooling the tissue,
1: vasoconstriction. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, would it be true to say that icing? impairs the immune response only when it is able to cool the tissue so it, when it's not able to cool the actual muscle tissue icing could be fine is that true yeah so
1: to interfere with the immune response it needs to have an enough time and be stronger enough to cause vasoconstriction so i would say that like cooling agents so like cooling gels wouldn't have that effect yeah they don't have the vasoconstriction effect it's just a, the, the cooling sensation
2: yeah, so in a sense, if you want to achieve pain reduction without impairing immune response, you can apply a mild cooling agent for a short period of time just for that analgesic effect to take place.
1: Yeah, because for the vasoconstriction itself, it needs to be a longer time of like immersion into ice.
2: Yeah, and, and it it's sort of, I guess, also practically speaking, on the field, someone got injured, Kind of depends on where they're injured because if you have a bigger muscle tissue that's injured it takes a longer time for the muscle tissue to heat up whereas like a more superficial smaller structure takes a shorter time to be i mean yet yeah, take a shorter time to be cooled down um, so in that sense you can't apply uh, that type of icing as long as you were able to, to on a big muscle tissue
1: Yeah, as long as you're not causing vasoconstriction and not allowing the immune cells to migrate to the site of injury, then you'll be fine. But it it is hard to to tell what dosage would cause this or not.
2: Yeah, that's fair to say. Um, The experiments you've talked about, it seems to be mostly focused on muscle injury and muscle regeneration. But a lot of acute injury happens in ligaments, tendons, or even myotendinous junctions. These are really common types of injury sites. Mm -hmm. Do we have any evidence to show that cooling inhibits healing of these tissue types specifically?
1: Yeah, as far as I know, um, all the tissue repair studies that I've seen, they're they're all focused on muscle. But if, if we think of the, the inflammatory response and the process of tissue healing, is very similar. So we might assume that by blocking the inflammation or with ice or NSAIDs, we are stopping those immune cells to migrate to the site of injury and trigger the tissue regeneration process. So I would assume it would, be a, it would have a similar effect.
2: I, I work as a strength and conditioning coach. One practice, I know that athletes regularly go through is going into an ice bath sort of tank you know either after their workout or after a game for uh, speeding up recovery and so on would this be a good idea based on what we've talked about
1: yeah based on the could have been would say no because right you might have this uh, sensation of accelerated healing because you're blocking the the inflammation and therefore you don't feel as much pain. But if we think of the process of muscle growth and muscle development, it is a process of injury, inflammation and regeneration leading to muscle development. So it might be interfering with that by taking those ice baths. You are not allowing your muscle fibers to properly regenerate when we we block the, the inflammation that is going to trigger the migration of satellite cells and leading to the regeneration of muscle. Mm.
2: Now, one argument I've heard for icing acute injuries is to prevent secondary tissue hypoxemia. Are you familiar with that argument?
1: No, but I don't I don't know um, the the rate and how common secondary hypoxia after regular types of injury are.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I myself have tried to find the answer, like whether it is a concern for acute injury tissues to run into hypoxemia, but I wasn't able to find.
1: Yeah, I was assume it's more more related to more like intense injury. It wouldn't be associated with the normal, like uh, muscle damage from strenuous exercise or a simple tear of ligaments and tendons.
2: I thought so. So would you say there could be a time and place for icing on intense acute injury?
1: Yes, yeah, I think it depends on how intense is that inflammatory response. And if it's intense to the point that it might be damaging, it might be good to apply ice and maybe dampen that, that inflammation a little bit. Right, If you have extreme swelling, extreme pain, One thing that we still need to figure out is is related to the timing, because right now what you see is that the very uh, acute phase of inflammation is important. So the moment where the first three days where neutrophils are coming and triggering the the first response, we don't know later on if it's okay to block the inflammation later on once this first response already happened. So that might be something that we still need to figure out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That also goes into that chronic low-grade inflammation. Like when after that acute phase exactly. is adopting anti-inflammatory approach appropriate and no longer have a negative consequence. Sort of a question. Now I'm also curious. Um, compression after an acute injury is a common approach to to limit the amount of swelling and to perhaps stop bleeding of the tissues inside is that an okay thing to do because in a sense that is restricting how much of that immune response can run into that injured area
1: i don't have like a proper response i think there's something that we really should look into it because i don't know how much this compression interferes with the immune response i don't know how much it stops the migration of the immune cells to the site of injury yeah Because it's possible that compression without ice, you're you're controlling the swelling, but it's still allowing for the immune response to take place. But I don't have a, a response.
2: I have this impression that we should limit the amount of swelling after an acute injury because excessive swelling can also impair the healing process. It may take longer or the healing may not occur appropriately, although I don't have any literature in my mind to support that notion. Were you taught that idea? Is there any evidence to support that? Yeah, I
1: I agree with you, actually. If I had to give my personal uh, recommendation, I would do compression and not ice to to control the, the swelling, because I don't think the compression would interfere much with the immune response itself. So I would still recommend compression. But it is something that we might take a look at, and maybe it's possible that it is also it stops proper inflammatory response. But I am more of the opinion that it's more beneficial than detrimental.
2: So, so far as the evidence go, we would say that taking an anti-inflammatory approach with NSAIDs is a no go, but compression to control swelling is something that we should still do as of evidence for now.
1: Yeah. So far, we know that it's beneficial for controlling swelling. We don't have any, any evidence pointing of it having a negative effect. Yes. But it was never looked at in terms of does it interfere with the immune response?
2: Yeah, that's fair. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious to poke a little more around that idea of approach to acute injury. If inflammatory response is desirable, should we even apply heat to help with that? very contrary to what we've been doing all the way along.
1: There was actually, I studied from the the same group that uh, studies cryotherapy and muscle repair. And they tried uh, heat therapy and they saw that heat therapy led to acceleration of tissue repair. In our study, we did a heat therapy group to see if that also applies for pain recovery. In our case, we didn't see any difference, but there is evidence of it accelerating tissue repair.
2: The study looked at applying heat to acute injury, and it showed that it actually speeds up the repair process.
1: Yeah. well, Yeah, of course, there was a mouse experiment. It needs to be proper reproduced in humans in a clinical population for us to properly recommend at a acute stage.
2: Oh, Okay, so we're still waiting for more evidence in terms of whether heat is indicated for acute injury
1: yeah there is the evidence but i wouldn't be ready to recommend the very acute phase of inflammation
2: so we talked about the necessity to address pain without impairing the inflammatory response and some ways that we could do is using analgesics that are not anti-inflammatories what are some other ways that you know of to approach this
1: so a technique that could take advantage of the benefits of icing in terms of analgesia without interfering with the, the proper immune response it would be contrast therapy, which is this altercation between heat and cold that has like shown good benefits and would take advantage of the analgesic effect of ice without interfering with the immune response because by alternating ice and cold you kind of create this uh, pump effect by vasoconstriction and vasodilation that actually might accelerate the, the repair by inducing increase in the blood flow.
2: Oh, okay, okay that's really cool. I have heard of contrast therapy I didn't know that this would be the rationale behind using ice and heat alternatively. Um, do you have any like on top of your mind any sort of guideline to like how long the icing portion, how long the heating portion, uh, when should we start taking contrast therapy after acute injury? Any numbers you have in mind?
1: So in in terms of timing, I, I cannot say, but in terms of like protocols, I know it's very short duration. So it's, um, between one and three minutes in each temperature and like with with several turns. There's, like, there's different protocols, but they, they mostly involve between one to three minutes in each. So it's several rounds of uh, alternating between them two.
2: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, even heat itself has analgesic effects. So you get analgesic you get effects without having the ice cooling of it impairing immune response. That's, that's cool. Anything else?
1: No, just uh, as a kind of a conclusion to what we discussed, I'll say the takeaway is that acute inflammation is important and is an important physiological process. And impairing this inflammation, be it with the corticosteroids and stats, or even cryotherapy, can have a negative impact by delaying tissue repair and delaying pain recovery, and potentially even leading to the development of chronic pain. So we should look at the the management of acute musculoskeletal pain, we should move away from a focus on just the the relief of the symptoms, but more with a focus on the pro-resolution approach. Another takeaway is that physical activity, exercise. We know exercise is beneficial for a number of reasons. This is another thing to show us how exercise is important because it boosts your immune response and leads you to have a, a better recovery from tissue injury
2: just a question on that now when you're injured in a particular body region obviously you need to take a modified activity approach but would exercise in other body regions like uh let's say if you have an ankle sprain you like had an upper body workout intensely is that beneficial to your ankle sprain healing and recovery and re- reduction in pain
1: uh potentially yes so one thing is the, the protective effect. So just being physically active, doing regular physical activity will lead to improved recovery once you have an injury. Even if you stop doing that exercise, but it, will, it will lead to accelerated tissue reading. But also exercise itself. During the exercise, you liberate a number of neurotransmitters that will lead to analgesia and also that accelerates the tissue repair it's a systemic effect it doesn't need necessarily to be in the the muscle that was injured
2: uh, that's awesome because um sometimes i have personal training clients who sprained an ankle and say tiffany i can't come into the gym i sprained my ankle i was like no you can come in i can take a look at your ankle we can start some gentle movement and we can exercise our upper body and now i have another reason to ask them to come into the gym when they sprain their ankles
1: Exactly. Will accelerate the recovery even if they don't move there.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. What are some things that you and your team are actively looking at and answering? What are the next questions you're trying to answer?
1: So, the timing is one of the big questions. So, we're looking at the chronic pain stage. What can be done at the chronic pain stage? Can a triggering of inflammatory response when chronic pain is already established leads to the resolution? Can we use procedures that boost immune response to trigger the resolution of chronic pain when chronic pains are established? So that's what we're looking at right now. Since all the data that we discussed and we we published so far, we're looking at at the very acute pain. So at the very acute immune response.
2: That's really exciting. Once you have more evidence and more concrete response to that question, reach out to me and I'd happy to have you on to, for another podcast. Yes. <laughs> That's great. How would our audience learn more about the studies in this area and follow you or the work of your lab?
1: Um, well, you can follow the, the Alan Edwards Center for Research on Pain the YouTube page and on social media because they will be updating uh, any publication that comes from all the pain research labs, they will uh, be published there. So that's one way. But I can also give my email. If you're, any of the listeners have follow-up questions, they can reach out to me.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Any concluding thoughts before we wrap up?
1: Exercise, people.
2: <laughs> ah.
1: Exercise. Yeah. If you want to protect yourself against the uh, chronic pain, exercise.
2: I love that. Exercise, everyone. Okay, it's a great chat with you today and I I hope listeners learned a lot today as well. Thank you, Lucas.
1: Thank you so much and I hope advantages for for listeners and I, I hope the listeners got a, a good uh, information.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast on inflammation and pain. I hope you found it helpful. Here's an important update I want to provide to all of you. I'm leading a National Student Committee on Pain Science under the Pain Science Division, and it's my hope to inspire more physiotherapy students to learn and be passionate about anything pain and physiotherapy related. So starting from January to July, our mid-month episode will be coming from the students. I'll be guiding them through the whole process of producing an episode, including researching the topic, reaching out to experts, formulating interview questions, recording the interview, and editing the audio. You will still hear from me in the episodes released at the beginning of the month. Please support our podcast by subscribing and rating it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Podbean and share it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy.